Hi, I'm Linda Eads from Ford Asset Management, and I'm here today with Brian R. Cease. And we're going to be talking about the Ford International Fund. Brian is part of our Singapore-based team, and he manages the Ford International Fund along with Dave Ford. So that's the fund we're going to be talking about today, talking about the performance of the fund in 2023 and how it's positioned going forward. So let's just start with the track record of this fund, Brian. Um, this fund started in 1997. And I just wanted to remind everyone that over that time frame, we've seen the Asian financial crisis, we've seen the dot-com bubble burst, we've seen 9-11, we've seen the global financial crisis, the European sovereign debt crisis, Brexit, and of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's a lot of big events, which obviously impacted markets significantly. Uh, but over that time frame, the fund has actually achieved just under 6% per annum in US dollars. So that's actually uh, not far from 4% above US inflation per year over that time frame. So it's done a very good job over the long term, but it had a tough year last year, Brian. And I want to talk about that first. Um, but before we get there, can you just remind everyone how this fund is managed and the style that you use and what you're actually trying to achieve as portfolio managers with this fund? Sure, Linda, and, and thank you for chatting with me. Um, I think it is important, in particular in the context of 2023, which we'll get to, to kind of take a step back and just chat about what the objective of the fund is. Um, and as, as you know, I mean, the, as you mentioned, the goal is to earn a real return. So over time, we aim to achieve inflation plus 3 to 5% in USD through a full investment cycle. But it's important that even before that, we remind investors that the primary goal is to not lose investor capital. So it is a very conservative fund. So first and foremost, we aim to not lose capital. And then secondly, to earn that real return through time. So Brian, let's talk about last year. Um, in fact, I want to go back a little bit before that. Uh, in 2022, I think the markets finally realized that inflation was going to be a problem, having seen all the stimulus that had come into the US economy and other major economies, having seen interest rates at very low levels for a significant amount of time, inflation was rearing its ugly head. And I think the market finally realized that central banks would have to start hiking aggressively to bring that down. Now, in 2022, of course, that impacted asset prices significantly. We saw massive sell-offs um, in the US, in other global markets, across all asset classes. And with that as a backdrop, the Ford International Fund performed incredibly well. In fact, I think it was actually slightly up for that year. Now, 2023, we've still seen central banks continuing to hike rates. In fact, they are still at the same level. So we haven't seen central banks start to cut aggressively yet, or at all, in fact. We have seen inflation starting to trend down, but despite these aggressive rate hikes, the US economy, let's look at that to start with, has actually surprised on the upside in terms of economic growth. So we haven't seen those interest rates grind the gears of the economy, and we haven't seen that reflected either in the valuations that the market is putting on companies. What is going on? It's a, it's a great question. I think that, um, I mean, in particular, as, you, as, as we all worked our way through 2023, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of rhetoric around uh, the, the debate between soft landing, hard landing, or at many points during the year, kind of markets priced for no landing at all, 
which was somewhat of a surprise to, to investors. If we look at the past kind of 11 rate hiking cycles, going all the way back to the 1950s, we do actually see that there has never been a, a recession or a proper recession during the period that interest rates were rising. So each of the times uh, that, that a rate hike resulted in a recession, which to be honest was, was a fair amount of the 11 rate hiking times, it always manifested itself after rate hikes were finished. And then in the coming months, uh, then, then a recession or at least a slowdown would typically ensue. And I think that there's a lot of pushback this year also looking at not only did the economy not slow, but it actually had accelerated during this period of rapidly rising rates. And when we look back in time, it's actually interesting to see that over those 11 rate hike periods, GDP growth historically has been fastest during the period of rising rates. And while it seems counterintuitive at first, when you take a step back and think about it, it is sensible. I mean, rates are rising because of a hot economy and or because of high inflation. So the fact that the economy hasn't slowed materially yet uh, isn't necessarily a surprise. Um, well, at the same time, we do uh, see leading economic indicators beginning to roll over. So let's talk about the performance last year for the fund, Brian. Um, we saw actually the Ford International Fund down slightly with the backdrop of equity markets, which were actually up more than 20% if we look at the S&P 500 and we look at the MSCI World Index. Can you speak to why there was such a big gap between you know, some of the asset class performances and the fund last year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is important to highlight just at the beginning that this obviously, as a multi-asset fund and as a conservatively managed multi-asset fund, that Really, we aren't aiming to, nor, nor would we expect to keep up with an equity market return. So that 20% return certainly wouldn't be something that, given how we've managed the fund over the past 27 years, wouldn't be something that we expected to achieve. That being said, we should have performed much better than we did. I mean, the, the peer group returned 10%, and our returns, as you mentioned, were down slightly. We certainly should have been in a positive territory and much closer to the, to the peer group, despite the fact that we are conservative. There are really three primary reasons why we underperformed last year. The first is that conservatism. So if we look at the gross equity exposure of the fund through the year, it was more or less in, consistently in the 70 to 75% range. So we were quite invested in equities. But on a net basis, it was often in the 40 to 50% range. And really, it's for two reasons. It's because we did see leading economic indicators begin to roll over. We did see earnings start to slow. And because of that first objective of the fund to not lose capital, we do tend to be more conservative than the peer group. So that conservatism resulted in about a third of the, the underperformance of the fund on an absolute basis, we would say. The second reason is really a function of the 10% of the portfolio that we have invested in China. So it's, it's obviously important to highlight, I mean, 90% of the fund is not invested in China. But the sentiment around China in particular last year was incredibly negative. And so despite the fact that we only had 8 to 10% of the portfolio there through the year, it was a significant drag on performance. And then the last piece, the third piece, is really the underweight that we had to large cap U.S. technology companies, not only the Magnificent Seven, but, but uh, to that technology sector in general, given how expensive uh, it is 
it was last year and, and continues to get more expensive. So those three together are really what, what resulted in the underperformance. So Brian, let's talk about the Chinese stocks. I mean, that was one part of the market that came under pressure last year. And a lot of market commentators are saying that China is uninvestable, that it's just a market that we don't understand. It's an economy we don't understand. And as a result, they're just not going to go there. What are your thoughts on that? And can you just give us some context as to why Ford is invested in that market? Absolutely. I mean, in, in short, the short answer is it certainly is an investable market. And the reason that we have conviction in that answer is because we are fundamental investors that are looking at the underlying dynamics, not only within the individual companies that we invest in, but in uh, the the Chinese economy as a whole. I mean, I think we need to take a step back and and because I think a reasonable question is, is China a value trap or is it offering good value? I mean, a traditional value trap is a company where you have an equity valuation, for example, that might be trading at a discount to the intrinsic value of, of assets, but the company itself may not be growing, right? So you need some catalyst to unlock that value. So that could be a value trap if that catalyst never uh, emerges or comes to fruition. What we see in China, however, are companies with earnings that continue to grow. I mean, we have an economy that, that continues to grow at close to 5%. And even for private uh, economic forecasts, right, you're still seeing Chinese economic growth in the 3 to 5% range for GDP, for example, even if one doesn't believe uh, government GDP numbers. So it's an economy that, that continues to grow, albeit slowing. And then for the companies that we invest in, we're seeing companies that are growing earnings at high single and low double-digit rates going forward, uh, even through the current economic slowdown. Now, ultimately, it, it harkens back to kind of the core investment philosophy at Ford in general, which is really fundamentally that over time, stock prices or security prices will follow earnings. There can be periods of time some of which can be quite long, where there's a disconnect between stock prices and earnings. But ultimately, the earnings a company generates, in particular cash earnings, is what determines the value of that company. And we will see that come to fruition even uh, in these Chinese equities as we move through the the coming quarters uh, and, and year. Brian, a lot of our investors talk about how the Chinese government intervenes, that there is this excessive regulation, that there's an overreach on the part of government. How do we manage the risk that the Chinese government will come out with increased regulation, which will have a negative impact on the businesses that we're invested in? No, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think one has to take a step back and look at regulatory changes that have taken place in the market. And what were the reasons for those regulatory changes? I think the Western press often writes about kind of heavy-handed Chinese regulators whose goal is to either curtail kind of foreign capital coming into the market or curtail capitalism in general. And the evidence simply doesn't support that uh, as an investment case. What we see, I mean, China is a very capitalist economy, but with a Chinese or communist tilt. So the, the Chinese are very happy to have private companies uh, earn uh, a, a reasonable margin, um, provided that the company isn't rent-seeking or earning that margin at the expense of the average consumer. What we haven't seen is regulation come in uh, that's designed to crimp profit margins, for example, simply uh, for the sake of, of curtailing yeah. capitalism. I mean, 
If you look at other markets around the world, we see similar regulation often kind of either passed uh, or touted by regulators, but it takes far longer to come to fruition given the parliamentary system or a democratic system, for example. In China, and I think Tencent and, and gaming is a good example of this, that if you chat to parents around the world, I mean, n nearly no parent would think that it was unreasonable to limit the amount of time that their children spent gaming. Uh, it's obviously better for the child and for society to have a reasonable amount of time spent gaming and not an unlimited amount of time. Well, in China, you can regulate that. And so that to us is an example of sensible regulation. And so as we look at each piece of regulation that has come forward, we really don't see evidence of the regulation being solely intended to curtail capitalism or to curtail returns to foreign investors. Let's turn to other parts of the world, Brian, because of course, um, you know, there are other parts of the market which performed well last year um, outside of the US, uh, in particular India on the emerging market side, and Japan has performed well in local currency terms. Can you just discuss uh, our views on those markets and whether we have any position there? Yeah, two, two great markets, two great questions. I mean, if we take India first, just to tackle them separately, I mean, India in some ways is the opposite of, of China. We look at China where all of the bad news and then some is priced into Chinese equities. Where we have India that has a lot of good news going for it, demographics for one, uh, improving regulatory environment, the ease of business increasing significantly over the past sort of three, five, and, and seven years. But we also have a market because of those things where it really is priced for perfection. Um, so we are invested in India. The long-term structural story is quite attractive, uh, but it's a smaller portion of the portfolio because valuations are far more expensive than in other parts of the world. If we look at Japan, and Japan, as you mentioned, was one of the better performing markets of 2023, in particular in yen. I mean, obviously it performed well in dollars also, but less well uh, in, in uh, dollars than in yen. Part of that performance was actually driven by the depreciation of the yen because so much of the Japanese economy and Japanese listed equities are geared towards exports. So uh, depreciating yen is a positive. Uh, the, the goods obviously are becoming more attractive at, at a, a global level. When we look going forward, I mean, we, we do think that we don't really call currencies on a daily or weekly view, obviously, but it's likely uh, as Japan does embark on raising rates eventually, uh, which is likely in 2024, that you will see the yen or could see the yen start to appreciate from here. Historically, that has been a headwind for Japanese equity returns in large part because of the fact that it is an export-driven economy. The difference here, and, and this is really what foreign investors are debating, is, is whether or not the reforms that are taking place in Japan, and really true reforms where corporates are being kind of pushed towards focusing on shareholder returns, uh, if those really take hold, then even in a, an environment where the yen is appreciating, you, you could still have reasonable returns, uh, both in, in dollars and in yen. And so that really is the debate. Uh, we are invested in Japan as well, though it's not a large portion of the portfolio. We would be underweight. I mean, we don't, as you know, we don't construct to the to the benchmark, but we would be underweight a traditional global equity kind of weighting in Japan. Uh, but we are invested in that market as well. Let's turn to other asset classes. So there was a lot of action in fixed income or credit. 
Uh, we saw 10-year Treasury yields last year rising to 5%. In fact, intraday, they actually went slightly above that. Uh, since then, they have pulled back somewhat. Um, sort of the early part of this year, they popped back up again uh, because obviously expectations started to be revised about when the rate-cutting cycle would begin. Can you talk a little bit about Ford's positioning within fixed income and how that's changed over the course of last year? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think we actually need to rewind a little bit further to get the full picture. I mean, we, we've been quite small in credit for a long period of time and even absent credit for portions of time where the majority of the fixed income market was trading at, at negative rates. I mean, fundamentally, we invest in credit to earn a return and earn a real return. We aren't investing in credit with the expectation or hope that rates kind of go from negative to more negative. So that's really the reason why we've been absent the asset class for such a long period of time. If we rewind to the beginning of 2022, we had 0% of the portfolio in credit. And that, in our minds, was quite sensible. It was against a backdrop where Fed funds rate was 25 basis points and inflation in the U.S. was 7%. So obviously rates needed to rise materially and quickly to tamp down uh, inflation. And as rates rise, it's obviously negative for bond returns. So the ability to be absent credit really uh, contributed significantly to the outperformance of the fund in 2022. Now, obviously, as you've mentioned, rates increased uh, and significantly as we move through 2023. Particularly, I mean, we started adding credit back into the portfolio early in 2023. And as we've moved through, um, but added most significantly in the third quarter around the period where sort of rates had this spike uh, and the 10-year briefly touched 5%. So today, 18 to 20% of the portfolio is invested in fixed income credit. The majority of that is in U.S. sovereign treasuries, and a smaller portion of it is in corporate credit. So we spoke a little bit earlier on, Brian, about the more growth-oriented businesses in the portfolio, uh, many of which are obviously trading at very attractive valuations. Can you speak to some of the more defensive uh, exposure in the portfolio? Sure, absolutely. I mean, we, we have exposure in the healthcare uh, sector, for example, where we own positions in Roche, which is one of the market leaders in the treatment of oncology. Um, we also have investments in the utility sector, uh, in particular, regulated utilities, both in the UK, a company by the name of SSE, and also in the US, uh, a company by the name of Edison International. That utility space is quite interesting to us because not only does it have defensive characteristics uh, and trades at quite reasonable valuations, but it also offers quite good growth. Investment required to transition from traditional fossil fuel generation to renewable generation uh, and the return that these companies will earn on the investment that they will make going forward um, is more or less kind of by uh, regulatory dictate uh, a sure return over the period. So you'll have these regulated utilities with 5 to 7% earnings growth in addition to a 3 to 5% dividend yield that you'll receive. So you have total returns in the low double digit range in a sector that is trading at a discount to global markets. Um, so they are quite defensive, but in our minds, you don't have to give up growth in order to get a, a defensive, still quite reasonable total return. So Brian, looking at the strategy of the fund, you know, as we go into 2024, could you speak a little bit to how the fund is positioned overall and how you're seeing that playing out? And more importantly, how you see the fund getting back to its 
long-term track record of obviously continuing to deliver good real returns in US dollar terms for investors. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly a, a fund where we are positioned to earn a real return through time, through a full investment cycle. We construct a portfolio that we always describe as an all-weather portfolio. So we don't take zero-one bets, not in the individual securities within the portfolio and not in the portfolio as a whole. So when we're constructing the portfolio, we're, we're looking at what is our base case uh, for global economy, for the individual securities, but also taking into account what is a bear case, what is a bull case, putting probabilities around each of these potential outcomes, and then looking at what would be the magnitude of the impact to our portfolio if any number of, of, uh, of these different outcomes came to fruition. If we look at how the portfolio is constructed today, about 60% of the portfolio is invested in equities on a net basis. So it's close to 70% gross, and that's hedged down to about 60%. Despite the fact that global economy is strong, and we obviously see strong labor market data out of the US, for example, and continued strength of the consumer, those are, it's important to note that those are typically lagging economic indicators. If we look at forward-looking or leading economic indicators, we do see that the economy has slowed. Uh, and so it's important to have some conservatism, obviously, built into the portfolio. So on a net basis, equities are, are 60%. As we just highlighted, fixed income is now close to 20% of the portfolio. Interest rates are now at a level where one can earn a, a, a real return. If we look at other asset classes in the portfolio, we do have precious metals, in, in particular gold, which is about 8% of the portfolio. Now, gold isn't there as a hedge against inflation. It's not typically a good hedge against inflation itself, but it is a good hedge against geopolitical risk and volatility in general. And so that is about 8% of the portfolio. We have a low single-digit weight in property, which for us is listed REITs, listed equity property. Um, which is a single property company that's that's domiciled in Hong Kong, uh, trading at a significant discount to its net asset value, uh, and an owner and operator of, of some of the best A-class malls, um, both on Hong Kong Island and in, in Kowloon. And then finally, uh, we have a, a mid-single-digit percentage in cash that's there to, to obviously take advantage of opportunities as they arise in, in other asset classes. Great. Thanks, Brian. I hope this conversation has given everyone a little bit of context with regards to recent performance, but importantly, just explaining how the fund is positioned to continue to generate that stable return profile over time and through cycles that gives investors real returns. Thank you very much, Brian, and thank you to everyone who's listened to us today. Thank you, Linda. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. The economic views presented are drawn from facts current on the date of publication. This podcast has not been reviewed by any regulatory authority, including the Monetary Authority of Singapore or the Financial Sector Conduct Authority. Ford Asset Management Companies are a licensed FSP in South Africa and a licensed fund management company in Singapore. For more information, visit Ford.com.